You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to David's Pick on America's Web Radio. And uh, we're very fortunate today, as always, uh, courtesy of Rick White and uh, the... uh, Georgia Military Hall of Fame. We have one of the co-founders, or founder, I guess, of actually the uh, Georgia Military Hall of Fame, uh, retired Colonel Paul Longrier. Am I saying your last name right, Paul Longrier? Longrier, correct. Uh-huh. And um, Paul served in uh, Vietnam, went in as an enlisted man. That one I can appreciate. And um, came out as a colonel, and um, he has had an incredible history. And uh, I don't know whether to call you sir, like I was taught, or to call you colonel, or should I call you pastor? Well, any one of the three will do, just as long as I get my paycheck. I don't care what you call me. <laughs> and, and for lunch. <laughs> so anyway uh paul what what made you decide to go into the military uh the president of the united states sent me a letter oh. i was living in los angeles and uh i got a letter from my mama and when i opened it up there was a letter inside Greetings. and it was from the president of the united states and uh, evidently it was a third letter that they sent and mama didn't forward them to me and the third one said, uh, you got 30 days to respond to this or you'll be put in prison. So I uh, responded immediately, <laughs> and within a matter of two or three months, I was at Fort Polk, Louisiana as Private Paul Longrier. Oh, I, I, that was one base that I missed, and I was very happy to miss it. It was Fort <laughs> Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> I, I, in, the, in the car, in the comics, in the paper, it's Camp Swampy, where <laughs> Lieutenant uh, Fuzz or whatever his name was was. <laughs> well, at uh, you know, I went to Hood. I went to uh, a number of uh, been to Benning, been to you know all over the southeast, basically at one at one fort or the other. But uh, Fort Polk, I was I was very happy to. Uh, I understand they have mosquitoes as big as horses there. Uh, they they have big mosquitoes. They have extremely high wet temperatures. The worst punishment that the drill sergeants would give us was after a rain, they wouldn't let us take our ponchos off. We were wetter <laughs> under the ponchos than if we'd have been standing out in the rain because of the humidity and, and heat. Yeah, and, the, you know, we, they did the same thing to us at Fort Ord, and... Um, You'd literally see steam coming out around your neck or, or <laughs> other people's necks, you know? And, yeah. Uh, well, I, mm. ironically, I went to Fort Ord for my advanced infantry training. Oh, really? I, that's yes. where I did my EIT. Uh, yep. Well, son of a gun. So uh, you got to uh, see some of the beach grass. And uh, when when were you there? Well, I got drafted in uh, June of 65. And I got out to uh, California in about September, and uh, that's that's when I did uh, advanced infantry training, AIT. And how did you like, you know, uh, if people don't know AIT, uh, you were obviously 11 Bravo, 11 B-40, whatever. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, and we did, and I'm sure you did too. Uh, you were there a couple of years before I was, but... Uh, I did my AIT in uh, 1970, and, uh, you know, I get tickled at uh, 
oh, how terrible waterboarding is. But when, when you did survival, escape, and evasion, and I'm sure you did it, and they gave you the can of chicken that you ate for dinner, and um, then whoever you're – you may have been your own squad leader. I don't know. I was a squad leader for, for my group. And mm-hmm. um, survival, escape, and evasion, we had to make it back to the road to catch the uh, truck back to uh, the company uh, headquarters. And, yeah. Um, if you well, you're got you're caught, talking about waterboarding. Um, I don't know any spec op soldier that was in the military uh, in the 60s and 70s that was not waterboarded. Uh, that was part of our training uh, to show us that you know we could we could do it and to not break and uh, and uh, if we were to be captured, not break and give any information or anything. So waterboarding waterboarding was uh, literally part of spec ops training. Yep, and uh, if you got caught, like I said, if you got caught in your survival, escape, and evasion, and they had waterboard you. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think that sounded like any fun, so I got my guys back to the road, and we took the the 18-wheeler back to uh, our uh, company command headquarters. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I I had quite an experience out there. I had done my basic at Fort Ord, and then, uh, you know, we we all got our three-day leave, and we went to uh, either... uh, Monterey or or Salinas or um, Carmel. Well, I had reservations in Carmel, and we walked in. My best friend and I walked in, and uh, the guy wouldn't honor the reservations because we were military. And wow, uh, I was not wow. real happy. But anyway, that's, uh, that's interesting because in '65 uh, when I was out there, '65 '66. Um, you go somewhere in your uniform and folks would buy you a drink. I mean, you know, that was, of course, that was before Vietnam became unpopular yeah. and um, or any more unpopular anyhow. So I can imagine 1970, it was a little bit different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, so anyway, I, I make it through the three-day pass and, and uh, go to check into my new company for AIT. And I'm standing in Chow Line that Saturday, and uh, this guy walks by. And stop. I mean, he came to an immediate halt, turned around. I looked at him. He looked at me. And it was a guy named Danny Nowak. He and I had uh, gone to high school and been friends in high school together. And he had gone to uh, Benning and done a shake and bake and uh, was uh, my platoon sergeant. I'll be. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, I had it made in AIT. Uh, I, uh, I made a deal with the sergeants, the the uh, squad sergeants, uh, that and obviously with Danny, if if they gave me one of their lockers, I'd keep it full of booze. And so, mm. you know, we'd come in after training, get in five six o'clock, go back. I'd go back to where the sergeants had their uh, had their drape up, which was a bunch of army blankets, and uh, we'd sit there and have a drink, just like yeah. home. You know, <laughs> so, that's great. Anyway, so uh, well, I'll be darned. You went to well. You can appreciate the uh, the uh, poison oak and poison ivy from Fort Ord. <laughs> yeah, I think poison ivy's everywhere. They're soldiers. Yeah, I think so. I think they uh, they bring it with them. Uh, okay, so Uncle Sam helped make your mind up to get in, and uh, you decided to go the army route, obviously. Um, had you thought about Navy or Air Force or anything, or strictly Army? Well, I was uh, 
uh, when I went down and took the uh, the battery test at uh, you know the uh, in, induction center where they tested you for everything, evidently they got my test mixed up with somebody else's because they said that I made extremely high scores, and they uh, offered me uh, the Navy to be a nuclear submarine uh, mechanic. Hmm. And I didn't want to live underwater. And then the uh, Marines offered me jet jockey, fly jets in the Marines, and I wanted to do that. The problem was they they let me know at the age of 22 that I was colorblind, and I had never, I'd never, I didn't even know there was a colorblind. And I can see every color in the room, but for some reason I couldn't pass their little. If you take the test, it's a ball with little balls inside of it, mm-hmm. and and the balls are all very vague and and to me uh, almost non-existent, and they form a number like a two, a five, a seven, or something, and I couldn't see the numbers, so they said, well, we can't let you fly jets, so uh, they they made me some alternative offers, and I said, no, I think I'll just get drafted, thank you, so <laughs> I, I just took a took the draft. Wow. Okay, and. Uh learned how to carry a weapon, and then they said, we've got a, a place that you'll love. It's a tropic uh, tropic uh, place that uh, you can go and just enjoy the rest of your tour. Well, basically, actually, um, I volunteered for uh, Airborne and, and Special Forces after I got in. They, You know, you could, you could uh, do that option. But uh, the... Uh, Army sent me to Officers Candidate School, and so I went ahead straight, almost straight from AIT. Uh, it was like six weeks after I finished AIT, I went to Officers Candidate School, hmm. graduated from there, and then volunteered for uh, Airborne Ranger, uh, well, Airborne Special Forces. Yuck. But I guess if uh, that's what you wanted, that's that's what you got. And uh, you got to spend a little time up in uh, Dahlonega then, too, right? Uh, well, during ranger training, yeah. Later on, I went through ranger training, and uh, yeah, I was uh, three weeks at uh, Fort Benning, three weeks at Nalaga, and then three weeks down at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and jumped out of planes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's sort of to each his own. Uh, oh yeah. I, when I was flying, I never really thought I was just going to go down with the plane. I don't think I want to <laughs> jump. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, so the army is, as I've talked to, to many folks and, and people that haven't served don't know it's such, it's, it's the world's largest fraternity and our sorority. And, uh, you, you can almost pick somebody out in a crowd that's uh, been in the military, whether they're in uniform or not. And, uh, uh, it just. I, you know, quite frankly, being at Fort Ord, um, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't all fun and, uh, double timing on some of those, uh, dusty roads that they got at Fort Ord were not real pleasurable, but, um, for the most part, it was, uh, it was a good experience. And I, I think that everybody should, uh, go through some type of military training. Um, well, one one of the reasons that uh, I felt led to start the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame was because of the camaraderie, that uh, fraternal uh, environment that we developed over the years serving together in, in some, you know, uh, austere environment, uh, hostile environment, or, or very nice environment. 
But uh, I wanted to recognize um, guys and gals and uh, who had served uh, in the military. And uh, when I found out that there was not a Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, then um, I decided I was going to start one. And by the grace of God, um, everything fell into place. Uh, Lord gave me uh, two or three great guys to help me, old Navy guy that um, personal friend of mine for years. He was a subsurface and a surface commander in the Navy, retired as a uh, commander. And then um, young young kid that I put through officer's candidate school named Rick White, who retired as a, <laughs> an 06 colonel. And uh, the three of us, uh, you know, marched on uh, Atlanta and went into the um, uh, state capitol and said, "Hey, uh, we want to we want to start a uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame." And we met with a, a gentleman named Harbison, who was the he was uh, the chief of the Veterans Affairs Committee, and uh, he uh, he asked me one question. He said, "How much money do you need from the from Georgia?" And I said, I don't want any money from the government at all because I'm going to make this a success. And he laughed and he said, uh, let's vote. And so they voted to recognize us as the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And it's it just snowballed from there, just took off. People saw, you know, we need two things to make this thing work. That's nominations from, from friends, relatives. Some people nominate themselves, and that's fine. Um, we we go on the the criteria, not not how, who, where, what, why, and um, and money. We we need nominations and money, and we've been very fortunate. Uh, veterans kind of jumped on board. Different organizations have given us money, and we uh, we put on our seventh induction uh, uh, this past uh, couple weeks ago in November, uh, early no to, to November. <clears throat> so it's um, you know it's and it's uh, starting its eighth year now. You know, there's one thing about the military. You can take a group of one person that's served, and they've got ten stories. You get five guys, and you got five hundred stories, <laughs> and it just it just keeps multiplying from there. I think. But oh uh, yeah, uh, this is one thing I I, I was. Uh, invited to go to one of the uh, Johns Creek uh, meetings, and uh, it, it's just amazing the stories that you can hear sitting at a table in the first 20 minutes. And uh, that's, a, that's a fabulous organization. I'll tell you what, that's, uh, I wish every city had an organization like them. They've really done some great things. You know, uh, they're bringing in the uh, traveling wall. Right. They've, uh, they've got actually a memorial park. It's a uh, a great group of guys, and they're just just a bunch of military that got together and said, "We want to, we want to honor veterans and uh, and introduce people to uh, to uh, heroes." And uh, that's basically the same thing we do with the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, Mike Mazell has done a, a wonderful job as president, and uh, they're getting the wall is being put up as we speak. In fact, we'll have a ad about it in a minute. Uh, but Mike has done a great job, and I think they're shooting for a grand opening around March the 29th. Okay, and, uh, I didn't know the date. You know, yeah. that's March 29th of this year. Uh, yes, sir. Well, uh, right. 2020. Wow. Yeah, they're making it happen, man. That's good. Yeah. And uh, Mike was on and will be on a few more times before the uh, the grand opening of it. But Sure, uh, yeah. You know, uh, you're right. And uh, one story that I've related a couple of times that uh, Mike was at the, the Big Wall up in D.C., and there was a, 
an older lady and a younger man, and uh, Mike was standing there, and the younger man was doing the thing with the paper and pencil etching a name onto it. And uh, Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stood up and uh, looked at the lady and uh, looked at Mike and said, I, ju- I met my father today, and his mother had been pregnant with him um, when her husband mm. went into Vietnam, and uh-huh. uh, the father was killed in Vietnam and uh, never saw his, in fact, he didn't even know he had a son. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It was just, I mean, that, that just wrenches me every time I relate what Mike had told me, and uh, that just... But it's it's called a healing wall, and uh, there's a lot of truth to it, you know. Finding well, out I've been or, to I've been to it twice. Uh, once uh, I went out of curiosity, and uh, the second time I that uh, was kind of a social pressure. But uh, I, I really, uh, to be honest with you, I don't like the wall. Uh, I lost too many men in Vietnam whose names are on there, and. Um, I don't know. They just—I uh, mean, I think it's great for society. Don't get me wrong; I, I'm all for it. But for me personally, I, I can't get within 25 or 30 feet. I just start weeping, mm. and uh, you know, I just—I just don't like to do that. So, but it's a—it is a marvelous thing. It really is. Well, we're going to take a break right quick. We're talking with Colonel Retired Paul Longier, and uh, we will be back with Paul right after this message. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon-cutting ceremony, and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project. You can donate at jcvets.org. I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to the Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon-cutting ceremony, and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project. You can donate at jcvets.org. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back on David's Pick, and our guest is retired Colonel Paul Longer. Longer? Longer. I'm having trouble saying your name. I'm sorry, Paul. But uh, we're talking about his tour in uh, Vietnam, and uh, I don't think you missed a medal out of Vietnam in looking at your bio. And the one that that, uh, bothers me the most is the uh, number of Purple Hearts, but also awarded the uh, Silver Star. And, uh, you know, you don't get the awards and not not be a hero and you know the uh saying from isaiah is if not me then who and uh no greater love of the man than to lay down his life for his friends and you certainly put yours on the line many time paul and uh we uh nothing but total respect and honor for you sir no i appreciate that thank you and while you were there and we've we've <laughs> I guess we've all heard it that uh, you get religion in the foxhole, but uh, you you took it to the extreme. You became a minister. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never been known to do anything halfway. That's kind of the reason I was Airborne Ranger Special Forces. But, um, yeah, I wound up, I was the commander of a, a special operation group called uh, Mike Force, Mobile Strike Force. And uh, we... we encountered numerous uh, different type missions. Um, we could be a recon element along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, or we could be uh, a defense element for a, 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 a special forces camp that was being constructed or uh, being re, reconfigured because it had been overrun. So we wound up um, up in the northern part of South Vietnam, uh, the, the northernmost special force, northwesternmost special forces camp, it was just a few miles from the Ho Chi Minh Trail and um, about 30 kilometers below uh, the demilitarized de- de- zone. And I had uh, six guys, uh, I had uh, myself and, and five guys. I had four platoon sergeants and a medic and myself, and I had a 160-man uh, mercenary company. Now, mercenaries uh, were indigenous to the country, but they were not Vietnamese. They were what was called Montagnards. And uh, very, uh, they come out of the mountains, and and they had mountain yards in Laos and uh, Cambodia and, and Vietnam, and uh, they were sort of a indigenous uh, type group that uh, was available for hire, and so uh, they were very popular with special forces because when when properly led and well equipped, they were very fierce and ferocious. So I had a, I had four forty man platoons, uh, one hundred sixty indigenous personnel mercenaries and then i had a uh, four americans a medic and myself five uh, six americans and we were defending a camp that had been overrun and they were reconstituting it and had the navy cbs out there building it and uh but it was right on the ho chi Minh trail so we had a dual mission we were reconning the trail but also uh trying to defend and be an early warning oplp for the uh the a-team camp on uh 6 February, the uh, Russians decided, I mean, the, uh, excuse me, the <laughs> North Vietnamese decided that we had to go, and uh, my guys were pretty fierce and ferocious, so they decided to use tanks uh, for the first time in the war. They attacked us with 16 Russian tanks, PT-76s, 
and uh, we followed and uh, and you know killed everybody we could and knocked out as many tanks as we could. Problem was we ran out of tank bullets. Didn't have anything to kill tanks with. And in the movies, when you throw a hand grenade under a tank and flips it over, uh, <laughs> you can chalk that one up to imagination. Uh, a hand grenade—they don't even know it goes off if they're inside the tank. They don't hear it unless you drop it inside the tank. But we were fortunate enough to knock out 11 of the 16. And uh, then we wound up, uh, we pulled back within the command bunker, and there were a uh, uh, few of us in there holding out until uh, the Marines from Quezon. We were an OPLP. The, the Special Forces Camp was an OPLP for Quezon, that Marine combat base. Well, we called and said, hey, you know, it's time to uh, initiate uh, the, the plan uh, to relieve us and um, reinforce us. And the uh, the Marine commander said, well, there's only six of you left alive at that time, and said, uh, uh, or seven, only seven of you left alive at that time because we had picked up one of the 18 command camp guys and said, there would be more of us killed trying to rescue you, so we're not coming. And uh, so, it, you know, it got pretty bad, and uh, the, the Navy A-1s uh, flying off the Coral Sea uh, came in and were bombing for us, but we couldn't we couldn't get out of the the bunker because we were surrounded. And then a special forces sergeant and two medics uh, tried to fight their way to us from uh, an old uh, the, from the rendezvous point, Olong Bay. Uh, the special forces sergeant Eugene Ashley was mur- was killed and received the Medal of Honor, and Joel Johnson was uh, wounded and uh, received I think Silver Star, and uh, then Rich Allen was the he he kind of drug their bodies off, helped them get out of there. So uh, once they told us they weren't coming, I, uh, I, I, was, I was not a Christian fellow or anything like that, but I had married a Christian woman, and the last thing she said to me is, I'll be praying for you. That's before I went to Vietnam. Well, during this battle, which lasted about 17 to 19 hours, something like that, um, I'll be praying for you. It kept rolling through my head, and, and uh, I was wounded in the ankle and the head and uh, in the arm, and we were all bleeding. I had 19 bullets left. Uh, one of my NCOs, uh, John Early, uh, his rifle was destroyed, but he had a 45, but he only had five rounds left. <laughs> we had no water to drink, no food to eat. So we, we realized we were dead men, and uh, we just decided to make a break for it. So we fought our way out of the encirclement. Well, during this time, uh, I was taking security for everybody and uh, told them to go this way. And uh, I saw a machine gun, and I assaulted the machine gun. And my rifle jammed on me. Uh, my ankle gave out from under me. And uh, I, I flipped in the air and landed flat on my back and knocked the, the wind out of me. And uh, I literally couldn't. Everybody was gone. They kept on going, which was what our plan was. And so during that time, I had an experience. The Lord appeared to me, um, had some miraculous activity going on around me, airplanes like stopping in the air and stuff like that, that goofy stuff that people just don't <laughs> expect or believe. And uh, and if I wasn't there, I probably wouldn't believe it either. But uh, it's, I'll be praying for you. And so I just I didn't know religion or church or anything like that. But I just said, look, God, I said my wife is a Christian and my baby's never hurt anybody. I expect you to take care of them. Do you understand that? And he said, uh, so then when I got in this situation, he said, what are you going to do? And I'm thinking, what what am I going to do? I'm not going to do. It. I, I can't commit suicide. The reason I counted my bullets is. I'd been in jail a couple of times before I was 17 years old, and I um, kind of rough, and so I decided that I wasn't going to go to prison, especially in a foreign country. 
And I counted my bullets, had 19. Well, I was going to say the 19th one for me. A rifle jam. There's no way you commit suicide. My buddies were gone. They were trying to get out alive themselves. And so when the Lord said, what you going to do? I just I just kind of broke and, and began to cry and said, God, I don't want to die. Not now. And uh, this uh, miraculous peace came over me. The airplanes took back off. Artillery rounds were exploded. I got up and hobbled uh, to, to, the, to my buddies when we made it to the rendezvous point. And uh, I got to the hospital in Japan eventually through Philippines and everything and uh, got a call to uh, through a Red Cross to my wife. And I told her, I said, baby, I, I got religion, so I don't need to start going to church when I get home. And uh, got home, started going to church, learned how to be a Christian, and uh, I felt so uh, obligated and uh, in love with God for saving me and everything that I felt a call into the ministry. And I actually got out of the Army in 1976 to go into full-time ministry. And uh, the Army uh, actually uh, sent me some uh, info about being in the National Guard of Reserve. And so I joined the Army Reserve uh, just to have a little extra money because it, preaching wasn't paying much, especially a brand-new one. I had three children at the time. And uh, so I uh, you know, went into full-time ministry. Uh, over a period of years, I pastored four churches. I uh, preached in prison for three years. I wasn't in prison, but I preached in prison three years. My wife and I went on the mission field, uh, Ukraine, Israel. Uh, I retired out of Honduras. I got called back on active duty during Desert Storm and stayed in long enough to retire. And uh, so that kind of, that's how I became a Christian. Wow. So when you went to Desert uh, Shield, Desert Storm, uh, you didn't go as a chaplain, I gather. No, I tried to. They wouldn't. They wouldn't take me as a chaplain. I was. I was actually living in Israel when Desert Shield broke out. My wife and I were living in Israel, and uh, so I just went ahead. When they wouldn't wouldn't let me come go as a chaplain, uh, I stayed there until you know the actual war was over. I never. I never actually went into Iraq or anything like that. What a. I mean, you're a whole. You're a whole book. <laughs> well, there've been there've been some books written. The first one was uh, "Tanks in the Wire" uh, by uh, a young young major on active duty at that time, Dave Stockwell. And uh, well, was, yeah, and then the second book was by Bill Phillips, uh, "The Night of the Silver Stars." Uh, and then you know, they a few years ago they took me and my family back to Vietnam to retrace the experience that I had, and so they made a. Uh, TV documentary, which you can watch on TV, just Google in uh, "Man Left Behind," not the man left, but just "Man Left Behind," and you can you can see the whole the whole experience in Vietnam. They took a, took me and my family to Vietnam and and actually recorded it over there. Interesting. Uh, okay, well let's let's get back to the uh, Hall of Fame now. So uh, okay, you're starting it, and you've gotten. Uh, uh, support from the government, but you didn't want their money. You just wanted. Uh, you wound up in a in one of their buildings, I believe. Well, and, we we are. We're in the War Memorial Building, uh, Slop, uh, Sloppy Floyd uh, uh, War Memorial Building, uh, across the street from the. It's part of the uh, the compound, the the whole uh, state capitol, and we're over there, and uh, just really thankful for that because that's a great honor for those people that we've inducted to have their pictures there for. I guess eternity, lifetime, or however that works, you know. Wow. So that yes, that's that's the location. 
is uh, Sloppy Floyd Building there at the uh, state capitol. Well, what are your hours, Paul? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're just regular duty hours. It's uh, it's an office complex where the uh, Georgia Military Veterans Services are, and I think they open at 8 and uh, close at 5. And uh, they're not open on the weekends, unfortunately. Hmm. Do you think that'll ever change where where people can go on the weekends? Well, I doubt it because there there are some security issues uh, in the building. I mean, you have to have to have an ID to get into certain parts of it, and um, I, I doubt if that'll ever change. Hmm. Um, but you know, it's uh, we we had an option. We could have looked into um, trying to build a building, which a friend of mine did with the international uh, the Indiana Hall of Fame. But uh, you're you're locked in. There's nothing you can do, and and so. Uh, we take the bad with the good, and we feel like the best for us is the uh, the, the Floyd building up at the uh, Capitol. And uh, <laughs> I didn't know you you had uh, gotten Rick into the military. I didn't know that. Yeah, what now? That you had uh, gotten Rick into the military, or sent got him sent. Oh to no, he he came in. He he came to OCS. I was just I, I trained him to become an officer. Oh, okay. Okay. No, no, I didn't get him in. No, okay. he he came in from I came in from California, and he came in from Georgia. And uh, you you trained him in uh, OCS, uh, officers' candidate Correct, school. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you must you did a very good job. Um, well, I tell you, Rick's a great guy. He's a tremendous. He's actually the the chairman of the board now, and um, I'm I'm slowly you know kind of easing out of it and. Uh, we got a great board of directors. Uh, we've got a chief financial officer who's a retired uh, military finance officer, and he's also a retired CPA. We have an old first sergeant that's the chief of operations. Uh, and nobody he, messes uh, with him. Huh? And nobody messes with him. No, he, <laughs> he keeps us all straight. <laughs> he, uh, first sergeants are known for jerking knots in people's rear end. <laughs> and then we've got some others that are just uh, great guys. We've got a Marine, uh, Tom Foster, and, and some, some people. I mean, Tom, uh, John Blair, and some people like that. Great, great, uh, just great board of directors. We've had uh, John on, as a matter of fact, and... Uh uh, oh, okay, good. Rick, uh, Rick has just been doing. You know, we're basically calling this the uh, Georgia Military Hall of Fame show. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's the only good. show that I do as owner of the station. I but uh, in talking to Rick uh, initially, and uh, we just we want to support it. We want to support uh, the Military Hall of Fame, and you know, I when. I was in the era, I, and I make it clear that I did not go to Vietnam, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the Vietnam veterans, you know, you went in, you got purple hearts, which means you were wounded in action, and you. we all raised our hand and swore to protect and defend. Mm-hmm. And to come back to what you all came back to was a travesty, and... Uh, the the people that were yelling and screaming and spitting and calling names and throwing blood and doing all this stuff they they never were in and uh, they had no idea about what what you all had gone through uh, as we were talking off mic uh, about the wall uh, I don't know of anybody in the mid to late 60s that didn't lose high school buddies 
Yeah, and, sure. Uh, and it was. Uh, well, you know, David. Let, let me let me say this. Um, I, one of the reasons that I went to Vietnam is because I love America, and I love the freedoms. I love the Constitution. I swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so when I come back, and, and I heard about that, fortunately, uh, no one ever spit on me or, or threw feces or anything on me because I'd probably be in prison. Uh, but I feel strongly that people have the right to protest their government. And and I saw it as protesting government. They, You know, some of them were idiots. They were stupid. They thought the soldier was the enemy. Uh, the soldier, uh, in, in one sense, was the victim because he was serving the government from their perspective. But in my perspective, he was a hero because he was obeying the Constitution. He was defending the Constitution. And, and their so rights. I, I don't have any, I don't have any, you know, fortunately, I never saw anybody do that. <laughs> a, a guy asked my wife once, said, did anybody ever spit on your husband? And she kind of looked at him and said, you, you don't know my husband, do you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, they were a bunch of, excuse my English, turds. Uh, they were stupid. They were cowards. They didn't know what they were doing. But they had the right to protest. And so sure. I, I got, I'm fine with that as long as they don't spit on me or throw something on me. <laughs> well, I, I, I think the, the misunderstanding is that uh, you were there defending their rights to protest. That's right. You yeah. know? And uh, without the soldier and without our military, uh, we wouldn't have those rights. And Well, it's kind of like your dog bites you when you try to feed it. You mm-hmm. know? I, I look at those people as kind of stupid and mis misled i mean they they had to be imbeciles why why would they throw uh feces or, or spit on a soldier who just doing what he what his government told him to do so you know i that's i don't even i don't even think about those people yeah. they're kind of pitiful and and shameful <laughs> to me they're they're idiots imbeciles i agree i agree the uh uh one thing that we honor too, and uh, we've had Donna Rowe on, who you know well. Um, yeah, yeah, Donna. Huh? But I tell you, the the ones that when I was in and sort of, I don't know, I had my feelings about them too. Was the the conscientious objector, and uh, you know, so many of them wound up going in. And uh, they wouldn't carry a weapon, but they carried that bag with a red cross on it. And uh, they were great medics. They uh, in they went in harm's way many, many times without anything but that bag, and saved. I don't know, you know, who knows how many lives the medic saved. And, well, uh, and I'll tell you, the conscientious objector is my hero. I uh, I love those guys because. They laid it on the line without, with, without any protection or anything. Um, and, and, you know, they obeyed their government, but they obeyed their conscience at the same time. Yeah. And so I, I respect them greatly. I see them all as heroes because I'll tell you, I, I didn't want to go over there without a gun. No. And <laughs> so uh, I had, uh, the medics and the uh, dust-off pilots, I just think, are uh, Ooh, yeah. In oh, a, yeah. uh, yep. head taller than everybody else in the world, you know. I agree. And uh, what they did for our troops and for the wounded is just absolutely incredible. And Donna Rowe, uh, she even flew a few dust-offs, she said, and yep. uh, her missions. And, uh, you know, that's that's what makes America America. And 
you know, these these people that protest or they do whatever they do, they just they don't have a clue. They just, like you said, they're they're idiots. They just don't know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, they're kind of sad, really. I, I, in fact, I I try to pray for them. I don't do a very good job of it, but I try. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the I was um, I didn't know this until uh, literally a couple of weeks ago that uh, that our oath is based on two Bible verses. And, yeah, uh, well, that's, you know. I didn't know that. Yeah, I some place in the in the rounds I had missed it, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's been good, and uh, what you did uh, certainly puts to shame a lot of folks, and uh, and you did it for all the right reasons. We have the greatest country in the world, and uh, if we don't support it and support it correctly, we'll lose what our forefathers uh, fought for as well and uh, you know thank you for your service and uh, all the brothers that that you uh, took care of uh, as commander god bless man well you know you know this is a, a lot of folks look at uh, I think I just lost Paul in fact I know I did uh but a lot of folks uh, look at uh, commanders like, uh, you know, they're just up there sitting in their high chairs but giving orders and making people do this and do that. But the reality of it is, no, they, uh, uh, they make the hard, they pull the hard decisions. And uh, we're going to take a break right quick and uh, call Paul back and get him back on the line. I don't, I didn't mean for him to drop off, but... Uh, We'll get him back, and uh, stay tuned to America's Web Radio and David's Pick. We'll be back right after this. morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org Back on America's Web Radio, and uh, we got uh, Paul back on again, and just a little uh, twisting of the wires, I guess, or something, or our wires got crossed or something, but we've been having a great conversation and interview with Paul Ongear, that's uh, Colonel Retired, I started to say Lieutenant Colonel, and I'm sorry, Colonel Retired. And uh, that's the one that has that little bird on his shoulder and uh, whispers in the commander's ear. What I, what I started to say, Paul, was that, you know, uh, there are a lot of people that have the misconception of the officer that is in command of 
whether it's the platoon uh, lieutenant or whether it's um, the commanding officer of a company or then you go right on up to uh, uh, to a brigade or whatever. And um, the responsibility that you all carry, uh, you're the leader. And uh, just like you were saying in Vietnam, the you were making the tough decisions on which way to go, and I, I respect. I was a grunt, and I res- had all the respect in the world for my officers. And uh, well, there's uh, officers are like anything else. Uh, some of them are better than others, and um, some of them, you know, can can do a better job. Uh, you can be in a unit, and some of the guys won't like the commander, and and some will love him. You know, so it's. Uh, but the bottom line is that the commander has a responsibility to take care of the troops. That's uh, I always felt like I was their servant. I was trying to uh, to give them an opportunity to succeed and to achieve uh, whatever mission that we were going on. And uh, so that's, I, I had a pretty good relationship with my enlisted guys. Well, it's, uh, you know, and when you say uh, take care of them, that's, that's – uh, <laughs> That's everything from being their supply officer and making sure the supply <laughs> sergeant gives, yeah. gets them everything they need, and that yep. runs the gambit from money to food and weapons and and uh, ammunition for those weapons. And we can't, you can't fight without them. But anyway, what uh, if, if if you were to look back, is there anything in your career that you would change? Uh, well. You know, probably. I mean, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the worst part of being a combat commander is uh, the, the number of people that were killed. I had uh, I had two of my men were, were captured and were POWs in North Vietnam for five years. Mm. And, and I didn't know that because I'd been wounded and, and we got separated. And I either, I assumed they got killed or they made it out because when, when I made it out, I, they sent me straight to the hospital and, I never saw anybody again, except uh, there were two people in the hospital with me. One was Pappy Craig. He was in the battle. And John Early, he was in the battle. But uh, then as soon as we went to Japan, uh, I never saw John again. I saw Pappy until he went to Okinawa, and I come on back to Fort Benning. Uh, but the number of men that uh, that we had, uh, one, two that were missing, Charlie Lindewall was missing for 38 years, uh, finally recovered his body. And then uh, James Moreland, my medic, uh, was missing 41 years. We finally recovered his remains. So, you know, it's uh, those are the things you wish you could do something about. But uh, I, I don't know of anything I could have changed. Uh, I did everything that I understood to do uh, for the moment at the right time. I was right there with them, leading them. And, uh, you know, it's uh, people die and people get captured in, in warfare. And so, uh, as far as anything I could change, um, did I lose you again? Paul. Paul, are you still there? Brett, we just died. I'm dead.
Uh, Paul. Paul, are you there? Uh, it must be on his end. I know. It must be on his end. Yeah. Well, we uh, we have lost Paul again, and uh, unfortunately, I think it uh, is on his end as opposed to on our end. Yeah, we've uh, we've lost connection. We'll try to reconnect one more time as we're doing that. We'll go to the break right quick, and uh, we'll try calling him back. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com, and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, and uh, we're sincere about that. If uh, you all have a business or you have an opinion, political or otherwise, if uh, you would like to uh, talk to us about doing a show, we'll be glad to talk to you. And uh, we do have some new shows coming on board very shortly, as a matter of fact, and they're going to be dynamite. Uh, And uh, both of them happen, the, the two new shows are both by veterans and we're looking forward to that and uh, so um, we're going to get Paul back on I think momentarily and uh, we don't know exactly what happens but this is live radio and things happen and sometimes you can fix them and sometimes you can't but uh, let's uh, let's transfer Paul back in one more time and uh Okay, Paul, you ready to try it again? Okay, hang on. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Paul, hold on. Let me transfer you in, okay? Okay, and we do have Paul back on the line, and uh, I apologize for... Whatever mix-ups that we've had today, but uh, <laughs> yeah. things happen on live. Well, I think I was answering the question about would I change anything. Uh, I, what I would change was way above my pay grade, so I couldn't have changed it anyhow. But if I could, I would not have sent us over there to hold status quo. I would have sent us over there to win a war. I would never send American boys to any country and tell them, look, just just do the best you can, but now don't you know don't kill anybody, any bad guys that you don't have to, and we're going to try to be, you know, really nice guys and do this. Uh, we, we could have actually, uh, we could have won that war in, in five months without a problem. It would have been a joke. The world would have looked at us like, oh, my God, what have they created? Um, but it literally, it, it would have. And, in fact, we did win the war because the peace treaty that was signed was the same peace treaty that was signed for Korea. And, um, you know, we've lived with the Korean peace treaty all these years. But unfortunately, the environment at the time 
Richard Nixon had got caught uh, messing up, and he he resigned, and the uh, Democrats took the House and the Senate, and so part of the agreement was that if the North Vietnamese attacked the South Vietnamese again, we would send all the supplies and everything over there to to neutralize that, let them fight their war. Um, and unfortunately, the Democrats felt that we had done all we needed to do in Vietnam. It was very controversial, and they were not going to uh, honor the peace treaty or require them to honor it. And so that's the only thing. If I could change something, that's what I would change. You know, uh, like someone else said, once we started the carpet bombing, it was over with. Oh, and, yeah, 12 days. Yeah. <laughs> 12 days. We could have done that. I mean, I don't know if we could have stopped it in 12 days at the first year, but I guarantee you in five months it would have been over because we would have slaughtered everybody that walked, talked, crawled, or attempted to fly that was wearing a, an enemy uniform. And, on, and, uh, and again, because of public opinion and some of, like you said, the Democrat, oh, my gosh, if we do that, the, the Russians or the Chinese will get involved. No, they wouldn't. You're getting a little weak on me. You're going to have to speak oh, up, please. Okay, sure. Uh, you know, people were saying that, oh, we, we can't do that because of the, if, uh, if we go in and start bombing, we'll bring the Chinese or the Russians into the war, and we don't want them involved in it. They, they weren't well, going to get involved. That's a cop-out. Yep. You know, that's a cop-out. That, uh, that was our war, and uh, just like, uh, you know, I, the, the, the Chinese had, had realized they didn't want it. Well, in fact, the Chinese attacked the North Vietnamese after we left, and the North Vietnamese uh, kicked the crap out of them and ran them back home. Uh, the Chinese were not going to get involved in that, and the Russians weren't going to get involved. Uh, if they were, when we bombed Haiphong Harbor, uh, they would have responded militarily, and they didn't. That uh, it was all political. It was all politic- politicians. And you know, uh, my only saying is, hey, that uh, it, it was not a good war, but it was the only war we had at the time, and that was the one the government put me in. So I did my <laughs> best, and and uh, I'm proud of what I did, and kind of ashamed for those people that didn't have the guts to go over there that that were called. Well, you did more than your best. Uh, you did the best for a lot of other folks, and uh, uh, your wife should be quite proud, and uh, and her prayers were answered, and that was answered for a reason, and uh, it, it has, it's nothing but a, a super pleasure having you on, and the one thing that... Uh, you, you're fading out on me again. Well, that's not very nice of me, is it? Uh, it's okay with me i just can't hear what when you when you start fighting out i can't hear what you're saying well um what i was saying is that uh as uh, rick white our friend has done a just a more than outstanding job of getting people on the show and uh i haven't had one that i haven't asked this question and that is will you come back and be on again and and uh, at that point, we'll talk more and more about the Hall of Fame. When's your next inductee uh, situation? They're, they're always on the uh, the uh, first uh, Saturday in November. Okay, so you have one a year, right? And yes, sir. I believe yes, you sir. brought in, what, 15 folks this year? Uh, 15 this year. That gave us a total of 115. Wow. Okay. Uh, total. You can run out of world space, aren't you? <laughs> well, I wish we could put everybody in that gets nominated, but we, by our bylaws, we can only take 15 and plus in if there's a Medal of Honor, then it does not count. So we can go up above 15 with Medals of Honor. Wow. Well, you're doing a fantastic job and fantastic service for 
not only Georgians, but everybody. And I think it would be an open invitation to anyone who's uh, coming through Georgia, traveling in the South, to take the time to mark down on your calendar of events to go by the Georgia Military Hall of Fame. It, uh, and well, I, and we, we love a big crowd because uh, we have a military band. We have uh, uh, General TC uh, folks that are escorting people around. We have, uh, it's just, uh, it's a great show. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't be any more proud of it than, than I am, and I take no credit in it because it's all the military, the pomp, and the circumstance that goes into that. And uh, it's, uh, and you're honoring American heroes. You know, uh, families can take pride. We have people there. Uh, there are people that weep and, and people that laugh and, and uh, buddies see each other for the first time in a long time. And it's just a, it's just a great moment in time for that, that couple hours that we're there inducting the, the inductees. Oh, that's, uh, you know, Rick told me to bring my own box of Kleenex. When, during, for the uh, for the induction ceremony. So uh, when I get to go down to uh, Columbus to the next one Children. next year, I'll bring my own box of Kleenex. <laughs> can, yeah. can you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I. I uh, anyway, we we are at the end of the show, and uh, I want to thank Paul, uh, Colonel retired yeah. Paul Longier, that right. uh, for coming on today and we're going to have Paul back on talking more about the Georgia Military Hall of Fame in the near future so um, Paul thank you very much thank you for your service and all that you have done for the country your country our country and uh, I want to remind everybody when you see someone in uniform going through the airport doing whatever or you see a, a, a first responder sitting in a Waffle House or wherever it might be Buy them a meal. It'll make you feel a lot better than it will the person you buy the meal for. And it's an honor to have our our military and our veterans. And um, we should all say our silent prayers for all of them that have served and those that are serving. And once again, Paul, thank you very much for being on today. Well, thank you for having me on. And God bless you and God bless America. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be talking to Paul again sometime in the very near future. Y'all have a good day. We'll be back on America's Web Radio after a couple of announcements. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.